Robert Kerbeck is the founder of the Malibu Writers Circle and an ex-corporate spy. Back in the 90s, he used social engineering practices in order to get private information from top Wall Street execs to sell to their competition. This episode, you will hear Rob's story about how he became a corporate spy, what made Rob get into writing, as well as learn how you can become a better writer by joining a writing group and attending writing conferences. My family goes even back even further. It was my great-grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented. Um, And then um, he switched over to cars. Then my grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership. And I was supposed to take over the dealership. And it was the same building. There was a placard on front that said, since 1899. And, you know, you know, you have a lot of listeners that have businesses. And, you know, you can imagine keeping a business running for, you know, when I started working there, it was in the late 80s. So it was nearly 100 years old. Um, and that's a pretty significant thing. Um, and so my father had a lot of attachment to me working there and continuing on with the family tradition. Um, and after I graduated college, I did go to work for my father. Um, the Philadelphia, My family's from Philadelphia and the Kerbeck name, Kerbeck Automobiles is very well known in Philadelphia if you Google it. You'll see Lamborghinis and Maseratis and Cadillacs and, you know, any kind of car that you'd want to buy. You could buy it from my family, uh, even to this day. Um, but I went to work there and I, I just didn't feel it was for me. The, the kind of the, the trickery of car sales, it just didn't feel right um, for me, which, of course, ends up being quite ironic because then I go to New York to be an actor and I need a survival job and I stumble into a career as a corporate spy which, as you can imagine, was far more dishonest than car sales. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you say you went to be an actor. Did you actually have any gigs going? And then you kind of was like, hey, I can use this skill for something else. Like, I'm, I'm always trying to connect the dots between like, right, was meant to be a car salesman, went to be an actor, suddenly corporate spy. Like, there's, there's steps in between the going to be an actor and corporate spy thing. And I'm just wondering, were you a successful actor or were you kind of just like trying to find your feet? Yeah. So, no, I worked a lot. And again, you know, your, your listeners can Google me. And I did over 50 major television shows, lead roles in Star Trek and Melrose Place and ER and NYPD Blue and a whole bunch of other shows in basically the 90s. That's when I was really working a lot as an actor. I did a lot of um, professional stage work. Um, and in my career, I starred opposite, you know, uh, James Gandolfini, uh, George Clooney, uh, Callista Flockhart, Maria Bello. I worked with, um, you know, all these, uh, very well-known actors. And then I had all of these other encounters and these are all part of my book ruse. Um, I had encounters with Kevin Spacey. He tried to pick me up. I uh, hung up on Yoko Ono. I peed next to Al Pacino. I got drunk with Paul Newman. You know, I worked with OJ Simpson the week before he became America's most infamous murderer. Right. So I had all of these crazy stories. So the the thing that I love about my book, Ruse, is um, that it's really two books. It's this whole take you behind the scenes of corporate spying, but also you're going behind the scenes of Hollywood and you see what it's like to be a working actor, you know, um, who's who's working. and, And, you know, I had agent, I had manager, I was making a living. But you see what a difficult business it is and you see how hard it is to go from like a B level actor to kind of an A-list actor where you're really, you know, you're really, you're, you're really doing great and you really have a career that's going to last. Yeah. And I, I guess for you, you were kind of like finding your feet and kind of getting where you were getting to. And then you were like, right, okay, there's, there's something over here that I think I might be good at or something that I think I can do. So I'm going to look into it. But for the listener that doesn't know, what is corporate spying or what is corporate espionage? Great question. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, corporate espionage is anything that a competitor wants to know about their rival. Um, you know, people would say, well, you know, what, what were you tasked with finding out? And I, I have to say every project was, uh, the word uh, is bespoke, custom. Every project was different because every client wants to know different things about their competitors. Um, you know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But what most people are shocked to find out is that major corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. How do they do that? They hire spies like me. And then they tell you what they want to know about their their competitors. So sometimes it's their plans, 
their strategies, new products. Um, it, always there's an element of the human component. You know, people want to know who's at their competitor, you know, um, and most importantly, who the rock stars are at their competitors, because ideally they want to try to steal those people. You know, um, you know, we live in an era now where we have LinkedIn. But when I was doing a lot of my my spying, uh, there was one review that said I was LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented. And and it's it's kind of true, you know, um, back in the day before LinkedIn, you you didn't know who was at a firm, let alone who the good people were at a firm. You know, uh, when a corporation is interviewing candidates, everybody comes into the interview and says, oh, I'm the best one on my team. You know, I'm number two on my team. You know, I'm the leader of my team. But <laughs> there can only be one number one, right? There can only be, you know, one number two. And so we, our job was to find out the true uh, rock stars. And a lot of times, and again, your business listeners may not know this, almost all corporations rank their employees. The, a lot of times the, corpor- the the employees don't even know it, but there's an internal metric that they use to rank their people. And we would learn what that metric was. And that would enable us to know these are the top people at this firm, right? And then a lot of times we would determine what their salaries were. And so then our clients could determine, hey, this is the best person. And boy, they're really not getting paid a whole lot. We're going to steal that person. And as you can imagine, when you steal employees from a rival firm, what else do you get besides the employee? A lot of intelligence and secrets on what that firm was up to. And Robert, how did you get this first job? As in the first time you did this kind of corporate spying stuff, how did you find out that this is stuff that people wanted? Because I assume you're operating in a time where the internet's not really a thing. You know, it's the late 90s, early 2000s. So yeah, how were you approached to do this type of work? Yeah, right. You know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no advertisements for corporate spies for obvious reasons, right? Um, so when I moved to New York to try to be an actor, I really only knew one person, my college roommate's brother. He was in New York trying to be an actor. And um reached out to him. And uh, at one point he was, he mentioned some job that he had and then he shut up very quickly um, as if he shouldn't have been talking about it. And I said, dude, come on, I'm broke. I need a job. Help me out. You know? So he recommended me for this job. I went to the Upper East Side. And again, uh, the Upper East Side is kind of the ritziest, fanciest area of Manhattan. I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a cave with two other people. And I go to this doorman building. I take the elevator up to the penthouse. This woman opens it. She's smoking a cigarette and has a martini. At least that's how I seem to remember it. Um, And she ushers me into what is the fanciest apartment I've ever seen. Um, And so I knew right away, whatever she did, it was lucrative, right? She was making a lot of money. And um, what proceeded was the strangest interview I've ever had. She didn't ask me a question about my skills. I had a resume with me. She didn't ask to see my resume. Eventually she sent me on my way. And um, I didn't think I got the job, but then my buddy called up and he said, no, you're hired. But don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. Right. And the very next day, I went out to Brooklyn and to the exact opposite, to a terrible neighborhood. It was the kind of the height of the crack epidemic, rundown Brooklyn neighborhood, not the Brooklyn of today with hipsters with beards and coffee shops everywhere. Yeah. This was rundown, you know, for real OG Brooklyn. And um, walked up to like a fourth floor walk, walk up, knocked on the door. Um, where I was supposed to begin training and um, still didn't know what I was doing. This attractive young woman opens the door. She says, come on in, you'll work in my bedroom. And I began to go, what the heck have I gotten myself involved (laughs) with here? Uh, She takes me in her bedroom. There's just a futon on the ground. um, And I'm really like, I have no idea what's going on. She sits me down at the desk that she has in her bedroom and um, she begins to explain to me that what we do is we use our acting skills to create personalities, personas, voices, accents, to get people at major corporations uh, to tell us things, to trick them into telling us things that they should never tell us. And that was the beginning of my apprenticeship as a corporate spy. And the skills you're using there are, you know, for the people that know these things, obviously, you know, it's very obvious that you're using social engineering. So how do you kind of build your skills in socially engineering people in a time prior to the internet? 
Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, social engineering is the term in the book. I call it rusing. Obviously that's how I got the title of the book ruse, you know, a ruse is a trick or a scam. And we were always coming up with ruses that we would create that would get people to believe that we were who we said we were. And so that they should give us this information, you know? So uh, this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. We have the European Union regulators here, and we need some information from the states, right? So we would do these characters, and the crazier the character, the crazier the accent, the crazier the story, in a strange way, the more believable the ruses became. So you know how many times people said nine, no, to Gerhardt calling from Germany, from the, the German office or the London office or wherever? Mm. Never. Because people are like, oh, my God, hey, I got Gerhard in the German office on the phone. Hey, Gerhard, what's going on? How can I help you, buddy? Right? People want to be a good corporate teammate, right? And we utilize that to our advantage to then get people to tell us information that, again, you know, anything and everything that we wanted to know, we would get people to tell us. Yeah. And I'm imagining people are paying top dollar for this. If you're, you know, speaking to one multi-million firm to give another multi-million firm, if not a billion, you know, a billion dollar firm, another billion dollar firm's information. These, yes. these checks must have been crazy. So how much was your first check for? Like, and you know, what kind of hooked you into you know, continuing <laughs> to do this? Well, uh, here's the funny part. In the beginning, we were getting $8 an hour. Oh no. Right. So here we were doing this clearly unethical and uh, definitely quasi-illegal, borderline illegal. And, and in the book, I have a number of close calls with the authorities. Um, and we were doing it for $8 an hour because we weren't doing it for money. It was just a survival job to support our art, right? And if you have any listeners out there that are artists, making money as an artist, making money as a podcaster, making money as an actor, making money as a writer, very, very difficult to do, right? And so many times, maybe even, well, not even, maybe, for sure, most times artists need another job, right? A day job, a survival job. So this was just our survival job until we became famous. You know, we were all going to become famous actors. And and there were many times where I was about to give up the ruse because I was working as an actor, you know what I mean? And I was doing these TV shows and, you know, I moved to Los Angeles and started to work and work my way up. And, and there were a couple of times where I was this close to giving up the ruse but I always kept it because somewhere in the back of my mind, I was like, wow, you know, if my acting career dries up, how am I going to pay the bills? You know, how am I going to, you know, pay my rent? How am I going to pay my car payment? You know, and of course, you know, I did about four TV pilots and, um, you know, you know, you do a TV pilot, you hope the pilot gets picked up and made into a series. I was the lead in these four pilots. None of them got picked up. And that was all of a sudden, now I was kind of in my mid, late thirties and I went, wow, you know, this isn't going to happen. And that's kind of when I crossed over to the dark side and I went really heavy into the spying and the job that started out being $8 an hour, by the end of it, I was making $2 million a year. Wow. So I guess you were kind of like still scratching that itch of acting though, through having the the ruse job as in you were kind of like, well, I am acting. Yeah. Okay. It's not really <laughs> on TV. I'm, I'm not in the, you know, I'm not going to win an Oscar for this, but it's paying as good as an A-lister would get. I guess I'll stick to it. So yeah. when you're acting, obviously you go to acting school and you do improv and all these kind of things to kind of better your skills as an actor. So when you went full-time ruser, that's the title I'm going for here, full-time ruser, full-time corporate spy, how did you better your skills as a, as a corporate spy? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I think uh, one of the things, I, I was doing an event with Valerie Plame and you may remember Valerie was the CIA agent that was outed by the Bush administration in 2003. Um, and um, she's the most famous CIA agent ever outed by the US government. Um, and I was doing an event with her and she was talking about political spying and I was talking about corporate spying. And we were kind of talking about the intersection of the two. And she was talking about how much research um, CIA agents did how much training they did before they went out into the field. And we, we did the same thing with these, these spy assignments, right? We spent a tremendous amount of time doing research, studying the firms, you know, studying their stock price, studying their annual reports, studying their press releases, studying what was going on in the town that the company was headquartered in, like 
anything and everything that we could learn that would make us seem like we were really executives because that's what we were doing. We were posing as internal employees in different offices to get people to give us information, right? And so we would do a tremendous amount of homework so that we were so prepared and we knew exactly what to say. And if somebody said something like, oh, you know, uh, Bill's at the conference this week. And, and, then, and then I say something like, yeah, I was supposed to go, but my kid got sick. So now I'm stuck here and they've got me doing all this compliance work. I got to fill in all these forms. Help me out. Oh, that's a shame. I hear the conference is great. That's a shame. Yeah, boy, I'm so sorry you, you didn't get to go. And now all of a sudden you've made this friend because you utilize that piece of information that you had done the homework for to make sure that you were aware. Yeah. And so when you're getting this information out of people, what, what kind of levels of employee are you calling? Because you're, you know, playing a higher executive level member of staff at another firm or, you know, at the same firm. So what level of employees are you calling and how are you getting their, their contact? Well, you know, when we first started doing the job, um, you know, the, the woman who hired me, you know, you know, it was her firm and she only hired women. She felt that uh, only women could do this job, that women made the best spies. And, and again, when I did that event with uh, CIAs by Valerie Plame, she said the same thing. In the CIA, the best spies were the women. Um, and she was saying that was because fe- women were able to reflect and deflect better than men men can get their egos involved. And so they're not willing to be as chameleon-like and, and many times be subservient. And so when we first do it, started doing the job, the women that were working at the company, they were all better spies than me and my buddy, my buddy who got me the job. They were all better than we were. And um, they would call assistants and they would call receptionists. And back in the day, uh, the assistants and receptionists were mainly women and they would bond. They would, they'd be like, Oh, I'm an assistant in this department. And my boss is such a jerk. Uh, my boss is such an asshole because I can curse on this podcast. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and maybe they break into crying, which I saw them do on more than one occasion where they start, you know, he's been yelling at me. He's horrible. He's going to fire me. And then the woman on the other end of the line is like, Oh, oh no, 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 don't calm down. Calm down. What's going on. We'll figure this out. How can I help you? And now all of a sudden they'd start giving information, but we couldn't do that. We would call the assistants and the receptionists and they'd go, no, we're not telling you anything. You know, they're trained to be gatekeepers. So what I learned pretty quickly on was I was better off going bro to bro. I was better off being an executive in one office, calling a male executive in another office. You know, hey, I'm an SVP in the LA office. You're an SVP in the New York office. And even you, even though you would think these people know each other, most times in corporate America, these corporations are so large, they don't know each other. They may have heard of that person, which is even better, but they don't personally know them. They don't recognize their voice. Um, and so we were, I was able to utilize, um, I found that the, the executives, the senior executives who, again, back in the day were more often than not men, I found them to be far easier marks uh, than, than calling women. Yeah. And give me a prime example of, you know, a, a regular job for you that you would do, you know, what kind of information are you, you trying to get out of these people? And, you know, what was your kind of, you know, process? We could even do a mock call now if you wanted to, you know, as if, ah, if you're open yeah. to doing that. <laughs> yeah, try it. What the hell, you know? Yeah. So I think most of the time we were trying to get, you know, we would start with the organizational chart right? Because my client wants to know how a firm is set up, how a firm is structured, what the different departments are, what the different units are, what every group does, and who the top people are in every department. And even today, I'm here to tell you, even today with LinkedIn, I'd say two out of three executives are on LinkedIn, which means one out of three is not on LinkedIn. And they're called passive candidates. They're the candidates that are killing it where they are. They're rock stars. They don't need to be on LinkedIn. They don't want to be get, getting inundated with requests from amateur hour headhunters and, and whoever else. You know, they, they could care less. You know, they're doing so well where they are. And so the, the corporations, that's, those are the people that they want, right? And so when we would call up and get the org chart, we weren't getting 75% of the people in a group or 80% or 90% or 95% or 98%. 
we were getting 99.9999999% of the people that were in that department with their exact titles, with their salaries, with their rankings in time inside the firm, right? And then we would take that information and then we would start adding on to it things that we would learn about products, new products, uh, plans and strategies. Were they hiring? Were they firing? Were they opening a new office in Las Vegas? Were they closing the Brussels location because it wasn't doing well? Like all of these things that would be incredible information um, for arrival, right? Um, and so, and I'll give you just one example of how much money this was worth. At one point, in, I think it was about 2006, um, there was this trading team, eight-person trading team at a major Wall Street firm that had made their firm a billion dollars. Their desk had made the firm a billion dollars. And my client said, we want to know the eight members of that trading team. Now, you would think, well, how hard can that be? But I'm here to tell you, impossible. You know, again, pre-LinkedIn. And even now, those guys would not even be on LinkedIn, Right. Um, and, and again, to give you a little example, there's a little tangent, but you know, Steve Jobs, legendary CEO of Apple, he refused to let his designers be listed in the Apple directory because he did not want them poached. He did not want anyone finding out who one of the top designers in the early day of the iPad was. Imagine how much money that would have been worth if some firm stole that guy right then and there, right? So this eight-person team was basically hidden within the organization you know, you couldn't even get a phone line in. Well, of course, I found out the names of those eight people and then sold those names to my client. And the question is, well, how much was that worth to my client? Well, I'm here to tell you some portion of a billion dollars. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's how much they were, they were making for that company. So he's like, Correct. they can make that over here if I get, you know, even one of them out of the, out of the eight people. Exactly, exactly. Because they that, that eight-person team, they all know the secret sauce. They all know what they're doing. They all know how they're making it work. So you get one. Usually one will bring somebody else with them, their, their best friend, their partner. So now you've got two of them. So not only are you increasing your revenue, but guess what else you're doing? You're dinging your rival's revenue because now they've lost two of their top traders or t- salespeople or, 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 or you know, bankers or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing in the technology industry. You lose a top designer, right? You know, it, you know, because there are people creating these products. It's not Apple that's creating this product, or Steve Jobs is long gone. It's the the people, the you know, the heads of these design teams, the the rock stars on these teams. And if you can steal some of those people, identify them and steal them, it can you know, it can change your company's revenues like that. Yeah, and that's one thing a lot of people don't really realize is that businesses aren't just you know paperwork and files on a computer. They're they're actually people and the people are the most valuable part of the business. And I feel like obviously now maybe there's a shift towards people understanding it's it's people that make a business work. But realistically, what you were doing there is like, you know how people invest in the stock market or, or you know, invest in crypto now and those types of things or buy a house. You're like, hmm, those people over there, they're working really hard and they're making that company successful. I'm pretty sure they'd like to get paid more, have more benefits, have a nice new car. And this guy over here is saying that he will offer offer that. And so you were just going, look, here's some information. And I feel like information is still and probably will always be the most valuable human currency that we have. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, what is the famous quote? Information is power. Yeah. Right? I think it was Francis Bacon, but don't quote me on that. But uh, yeah, information is power. It, um, it, could be, it could be Francis Bacon. I have no clue. But <laughs> one thing I want to ask you is, how long were you doing the the kind of the rusing or the, you know the the corporate spying? Was it a long time, a short time? Like you know, if I was making a million dollars, two million dollars a year, I I would be very hard to make me stop. Even if I went to prison, I'd still come out. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I was only making kind of the million dollar um, in the run up to the crash. Right. So it was it you know. Up until like the late 90s, it was just a survival job. You know, some weeks I worked, some weeks I didn't. If I had an acting job, I didn't, you know. And the woman that we worked for, she was always great about, look, you get an acting job, go do your job, go do your, you know, your play for three months, or your TV show for, you know, six weeks or whatever. And then when you're unemployed, come right back to work. So you're all, you always have a paycheck, right? Um, and so that's what we did for many, many years. And then uh, it was the late 90s when I finally, my acting career waned and all of a sudden I went, whoa. And that was when I kind of got into the spying. And then very quickly in the run up to the crash of 2008, the income just went up 
exponentially from year to year. You know, it was like 500 grand, 700 grand, 900 grand, 1.1, 1.3, 2 million dollars. And then of course the crash came. And when the crash came, remember um you know, business stopped on a dime, right? So corporations were no longer hiring spies to find out about their competitors. Corporations were just trying to survive, right? They didn't know if they were going to make it. So they were cutting all their expenses, which obviously spying is is an extravagance, so to speak. Um, And I had to take a job in corporate America. And it was the first job I'd ever taken in corporate America. And I went to work for a major executive recruiting firm based out of Hong Kong. And what I learned, uh, so here I am rusing people all the time, and I'm the one kind of tricking people and, you know, doing all this stuff. And when I went to work in corporate America, all of a sudden, I became the one being rused. Uh, And what I found was that the lying done in corporate America, face to face, in many ways was far worse than the lying that I had been doing over the telephone, you know, because over the phone, you know, it's not like I'm lying directly to somebody's face. You know, these are, you know, I was like kind of one executive to another executive, you know, you know, it was just to get information to help, whatever, you know, I wasn't stealing, you know, uh, people's, uh, you know, private banking information or their credit card numbers or taking money out of their bank accounts. It was kind of like, okay, this is, and again, this is just a rationalization. I'm not, I'm not saying that it, it, it's right per se. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I'm not proud of what I did, uh, though it's a hell of a great story. Um, but at the end of the day, it was kind of, I, I felt like it was part of the capitalist system, you know. Um, but when I went to work for a firm, here I am working every day with people. And I thought we're friends, we're teammates, and we're developing this relationship. And people were constantly stabbing me in the back or forget about in the back. They were stabbing me right in the chest, you know, I mean, like right to my face. And that was shocking to me. So, you know, I I do hope some of your listeners will pick up the book Ruse. I wrote it during COVID. uh, So I wanted it to be fun. It reads like a spy novel. And so if you're reading the book and you're getting mad at me because I'm pulling off all these scams and ruses on people, don't worry. In a few more pages, I will be the one getting rused. I will be the one getting tricked. And a lot of readers have reached out and they've said, oh, man. They love that the tables got turned on me, you know, um, because it's kind of I, I basically I get my comeuppance in the book where all of a sudden this guy that seems to be like the king of the the king of the ruse is now the victim of a ruse. Yeah. And oh, one thing I want to know then is because, you know, obviously things went south once, you know, the financial crisis hit, which pretty much hit everybody. I don't think there's yeah. anybody really, uh, you know, that I've heard of or know of that really made a killing in 2008. Everybody lost a bit of something, whether it was a job or this. And yeah, people rebuilt and they, you know, they built back bigger. But, you know, between 2008 and, you know, now or when the book was released, which would be, you know, 2020 time, 2021 time, what got you into writing? Were you a writer beforehand? Because I know you have another book about saving your family from a, a forest fire or something like that in your house or something similar to that? Uh, from a wildfire, um, right. you know, um, back in, in 2018, uh, we had a wildfire in Los Angeles in Malibu, which was the worst wildfire in our history and in, in Los Angeles County recorded history. Yeah. Um, uh, we lost 2000 homes. People died. Uh, t- uh, uh, you know, animals died. I mean, it was her- half the town burned down. It was horrific. And um, so I wrote a book about that because we fought the fire and we saved our house, even though 17 of 19 on our street burned to the ground. Um, and um, what happened was after the, I had been an English major in college and then I fell in love with acting and that took me on the acting journey. And I, I really didn't do any writing. Um, but after the crash of 2008, I take the job in corporate America The job in corporate America flames out after a year and a half. The company fires me. Uh, They had made me all these promises. They were going to pay me all this money. They didn't pay me anything. Um, And I was so depressed that one day I was sitting down and I wrote a suicide note. Now, Mm -hmm. it wasn't me writing the suicide note. I wasn't really contemplating uh, committing suicide. But I wrote it with this character in mind, this character that had been bouncing around in my head. And all of a sudden, I wrote this and all of a sudden I realized, wow, I just wrote like a short story, like the first piece of fiction that I'd written in t- 20 years. And I showed it to an actor friend of mine and he said, wow, this is really good. You know, you should you should write a book, you know, with this character. And so I did. And the book, I'm here to tell you, the book was terrible. Um, <laughs> but But the story was good. The story was good. The story was true. But the writing was really rough. And so then I decided to 
improved my writing. I started going to some writers' conferences and um, started writing a bunch of short stories. To my surprise, they got they started getting published in magazines. I wrote some essays. They got published in magazines. All of a sudden, every short story that I had written was published. So I'm like, well, I guess it's time to write a book. And then that fire came. And uh, I wrote an essay that the Los Angeles Times published. And, and then a publisher reached out and said, will you write a book on this fire and the whole wildfire epidemic that's you know, uh, gripping not only California now, but the United States and the world um, as a result of, um, um, you know, uh, the planet getting hotter and drier, we're getting fires that are bigger, larger, and more ferocious. Um, So I wrote that book and that book, you know, did really well. Um, You know, I'm really, I'm really honored that it won a couple of uh, national book awards. And, um, and then I, I read the opening from Ruse at a writer's conference and people just freaked out about the whole world of corporate spying. People said, no one's ever written about this. You know, you got to write a book about corporate spying. And so I did. So then I wrote Ruse. Um, and so that's kind of how I've circled into this. You know, I pivoted as the, as the young folks say, I pivoted to a <laughs> new career at a later point in life. Yeah. One thing I'm, I'm kind of, you know, seeing like connecting the dots here is Technically, apart from the recruitment job, we'll put that to the side, that doesn't count. But you've always been a creative. And I think the thing is, when you're younger and you're creative, you see the the three main ones. You see, okay, I could be an actor, I could be a musician, or I could be, you know, like an artist. And, you know, the, the artist side of things is very open. That could be with your hands, you know, drawing stuff, mm-hmm. the sculptures. But as you kind of expand out into, you know, the, the what I call the real world, you know, if you don't make it into the dream jobs, is you find yourself finding your very personal form of creativity. And, you know, nowadays people are seeing it more often. They could be a podcast, they could be a YouTuber, they could be this, they could be that. But it seems like you found your flow with writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if when you're sat down, you know, writing these first few short stories, if you're there kind of thinking to yourself, oh, I'd love to turn this into a play or I'd love to turn this into a movie. Or if you were kind of like, no, this, this, is, this is enough. This is me expressing what I want to express? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as a young person, I loved short stories and um, I loved reading short stories. Um, so it was really kind of cool for me that that was kind of what I, when I went back to writing, that's what I, I started to write. But I also think there's something about the short story that um, is underrated as a teaching tool for writers. Because, you know, obviously, if you write a short story, you know, and, and even if you get it published in a magazine, it's not going to, first of all, you're not going to get paid very much. And it's not going to be read by millions of people. Whereas a book, yeah, a book can be read by a lot more people. People can buy a book, you know, um, and it's kind of like a short film, film versus, a, you know, a feature length film, right? You can't really make a lot of money with a short film, but they're great ways to learn. And what I learned about writing short stories is, you know, normal short story, um, the author John Irving says uh, 15 pages is the perfect length for a short story, right? So I started writing short stories that were around 15 pages, 13 pages, 12 pages, 16 pages, 17 pages, but they were all within that range. And all of a sudden one day I'm like, wow, you know what? I've, I've published 20 short stories. You know, if I wrote 20 chapters in a book and they were each about 15 pages, well, now you've got a 300 page book. And it was like a light bulb went off that the idea of writing a book, which may sound scary for some of your listeners, because I'm sure there are people listening right now. They're like, I've always wanted to write a book. I was always I've always wanted to write my memoir or I've always wanted to write a book about my business career and and help other people. And it can seem a little daunting. But if you break it down and you just go each chapter is just a short story. So just write one short story chapter and then write another short story chapter. And you just keep writing them. You don't think too much about, oh, blah, 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 you know. And all of a sudden, 20 short stories later, 15 short stories later, you have a book. And that's kind of what I did with Malibu Burning. It's what I've done with Ruse. And I have found it really works well. So you don't get overwhelmed by the idea of writing a book. Yeah, because you're you're just, you're kind of like, you know, taking little baby steps and then you look back and you go, oh, I've come a long way. Yeah. So for you, when you kind of wrote that that long form piece and it got picked up by the magazine and you were contacted by the publisher, what did you kind of get out of it? Did they give you like an advance or did you kind of do like a, a split of revenue deal? Because I'm always curious because I've had quite a few authors on here and obviously I've had self-published authors. I've had someone yeah. from back in the day who got an advance. I had other people that did, you know, rev splits and all that kind of stuff. But I'm yeah. always curious to hear every author's different kind of book deal if they're willing to talk about it. 
Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I think that every deal is different. And so the Malibu burning deal was different from the ruse deal. You know, the ruse book, there was an advance. Um, ruse is published by a small press called Steerforth Press, which is distributed by Penguin Random House, which is pretty nice because you get the benefits of a small press. So you get a lot of personal attention. Um, Steerforth has been around for many years, I think 30 plus years. So they have a great reputation, but you have all of the machinery of Penguin Random House behind you. So you get all of the, you know, your book, your book is everywhere. Your book is in every bookstore, you know, all over the world. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm listed on the Penguin Random House website, you know, so, so there's something that's really nice about that. Um, but I, I do think in terms of self-publishing, because, you know, I know people that have self-published and I do think there's a time and a place for self-publishing. Um, and I think the only thing I'll say to anybody who's listening that wants to self-publish is do it right. Because there are too many self-published books out there that are rushed, that aren't edited properly, that aren't copy edited properly, that aren't proofed well. Um, and so now you're putting a book out into the world that just kind of isn't up to snuff. Um, and I think that's and, and, and it might even it might not even be that your story isn't good. You know, it's just that you, you haven't done the legwork that when you get published by a Penguin Random House, they're, they are ensuring that, right? They've got so many people checking all of that stuff. Everybody that you're working with is a professional as opposed to self-publishing. If you kind of do it on your own a little too much, um, you know, you, you know, and I've seen, you know, a number of books like that, that they, they, they look self-published and there's a bit of a thing about self-publishing means your book is unprofessional. And I don't think that has to be the case. I think you can publish a professional book a professional looking book, a professionally written book that is compelling and sells and you can self-publish it. Um, now, sometimes it's better. Um, certain books do better in the self-published range. I think if you're writing a genre book, um, so if you're writing a horror book or sci-fi, you know, a lot of people have had success doing that self-publishing. I think business books, you know, if, if you're willing to really hustle to market it, self-publishing can work. And I also think books that have like a time issue. So let's say you're writing about something, uh, you know, you want to write a book about COVID, which I, I don't think you should because there are going to be a zillion <laughs> books about COVID and we don't need another book about COVID. But let's just say you wanted to write a book about COVID, right? Well, you know, that's kind of time sensitive. You know, are people going to care? Are, are people going to care about COVID in 10 years? Probably not. And self-publishing allows you to get a book out to market much more quickly than traditional publishing, like with Penguin Random House, generally with, with the traditional publishers, when you get your book accepted, it takes about 15 months to 18 months for your book to be on the shelves. Whereas self-publishing, you know, you could self-publish a book in three months. Um, so, so there are advantages to, to self-publishing. And, and, I, and I think in the right place, if you, if you do your homework and, and you, you, know, you make sure you hire a great editor, and you hire a copy editor, you know, you don't have your, you know, your, you know, your, your wife do it unless she's a professional or your husband or your, your cousin, you know, cause a lot of times people have friends. Oh, well, my friend's a lawyer. They really know a lot about, you know, but a lawyer is not a professional copy editor, you know, and, and I, and I think people kind of in trying to save money, they compromise their product. And then, you know, you've got a book on the shelves that is probably not as good as it could have been. Yeah. And with the idea of making your content the best it can be, and you know, I'm using the word content not as a catch-all term, but just to refer to writing and your books. You said you went to writing conferences and joined writing groups and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, putting to the side about how you found them, because I'm sure anyone with half a brain nowadays knows, you know, Google is the best place, Facebook groups, all that kind of stuff. But how did you benefit from joining these conferences and groups? What did you get out of them? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, I told you that I, you know, I wrote this book, you know, off of that suicide note and that the book wasn't very good. Right. And so um, the first thing I said is, well, you know, I need people to read my work. I need people to read my work and give me constructive feedback, constructive criticism. And so I created a writer's group, the Malibu Writer Circle. That was 10 years ago. It exists today. We meet every three weeks. We exchange our work. We give each other notes. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think I get anything published without the notes of my fellow writers because they're immensely helpful. 
And the other thing about a writer's group that's great is it's free. You know, you're meeting with people, you know, you're reading their work, you're giving them notes, you're trying to be of service to their writing, they're doing the same for you. So I recommend anybody who's listening, wants to write their memoir, wants to write their business book, um, start a writer's group. You don't need a lot of people, three or four, five, you know, and, you know, set it up, you know, and set it up forever. You know, we meet every three weeks. I think that's good. More than that, it gets a little bit, you know, hard with, you know, life and family and jobs. Um, but, you know, do whatever works for you. And and I found I, I have found it to be invaluable. Um, but then I also did go to some writers conferences Two two in particular. I'm, I'm really fond of um, uh, uh, Tin House, which is in Portland, Oregon, and Bread Loaf, which is in Vermont. Um, they're two of the top writers conferences in the country. Um, and they're great places to go to learn a ton, meet a bunch of writers, network, uh, meet agents and editors. Um, so I highly recommend if you've kind of, I don't know that I, that would be the first place I would start, but if you've been doing some writing and you're really into the writing and you're producing material and you're kind of starting to get your feet under you, but maybe you're not quite there yet, a writer's conference like that is a great way to really take yourself up to the next level. Yeah. And I guess for you, I, I don't know if this is like a, a question that you've, you've kind of considered for yourself, but you know, the next level for, for most things is to go into a different medium. So if you've mm. got, you know, a book, you turn it into a TV show or a film or that type of thing. Is that the kind of stuff you'd want to do with Ruse or your other book about um, Malibu burning? Yeah, well, look, they're both in uh, process to be made into film projects, Malibu burning into a documentary and ruse into a TV series. Um, now, again, you know, uh, you know, my, you know, you know, my story, you know, in my book ruse about, you know, me being an actor that did four pilots and was really close to having a TV series go and then it didn't happen. So I understand very well that until I'm standing on the set of ruse or standing on the set of Malibu burning, uh, you know, you don't count your chickens before they hatch. But look, you know, serious people, well-known people have, you know, reached out to me and we have taken both projects pretty far down the road. Um, so that's just that alone is pretty exciting, you know, to be working with major uh, Hollywood um, producers and television executives and studios. Um, it's been really exciting. And, and of course, I hope, I hope both of these projects do come to fruition. Unfortunately, in Hollywood, you know, for every project that makes it to TV or film, they're probably 20, 50, 100, 500, 1,000, I don't know, that don't make it. Um, so um, so I am, I'm cautiously optimistic, but knock on wood. <laughs> and for you, how are you kind of making the most of these opportunities? Because you seem like the kind of person for me who kind of makes the most out of an opportunity or, you know, kind of removes himself from it. So for you, you, you quite admittedly said, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, counting my chickens before they hatch type thing. But I'm sure from these relationships with these Hollywood kind of executives and producers, you're definitely getting something out of it. And, you know, for the listener, how, how can they think in the same way as you, Robert? Yeah, you know, somebody said something to me a long time because, you know, we think of, you know, wanting to meet people, um, you know, because maybe they can, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I was going to say this the right way, but, you know, maybe they can do something for us or they can help us or they, you know, they get us a job or they can, uh, you know, get my movie made or whatever. And, and somebody said to me a long time ago to, to not think like that, you know, and to think of, of these, these individuals as people, right. And, and to get to know people and connect with them learn stuff about them, enjoy being with them, enjoy joking with them, enjoy the artistic process with them. Because then, you know, regardless of what happens with the project, because as I said just a minute ago, you know, most of these things don't make it to the screen. You know what I mean? And sometimes projects take 10 or 20 years. You know, I mean, there was the that recent film with uh, uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, The Irishman, which was made on a book, um, uh, which was made out of a book. I mean, that book was that book had been out for 10 or 20 years before it got made into that film you know so uh, you know I, I, that's what i'm trying to do is is just to is to just enjoy the process um you know if you told me that it, at this point in life i was going to have published two books within a couple of years i would have said no way and then the fact that they might be developed into film and tv projects i would have been i would have been jumping up and down so why would i stop jumping up and down now even if they don't get made 
just to have gone on this journey is pretty cool. Yeah. And one thing I want to ask you, Robert, kind of to not bring things full circle, but kind of like backtrack, but bring it also to the current modern day. If you were going to do kind of corporate espionage and spying now or rusing now, how would you go about it now? Because realistically, you know, phone numbers aren't really a thing anymore. Everything's all digital. Like how in this cyber world would, would you do what you used to do? Well, that's a great question. And um, I think the thing that is hilarious is in this era where we have, you know, we've said the phone call doesn't exist or phone numbers don't exist. I'm here to tell you that they do. And again, it's counterintuitive, but now calling somebody on the phone and you get somebody to pick up on the phone, it's unbelievable the information you can get from people. One of the, the, the guys that I trained to spy, he's still, you know, his career is booming, you know, especially since I'm, I'm now long retired. And he tells me all the time, you know, um, you know, he's got all these tricks that he does. You know, we, we, you know, we would, you know, you do this thing now, you see it all the time, call spoofing, where a number will come up that seems like it's a number that you know, or a number that you recognize and you answer it and it's not, it's, it's basically some scam or solicitation, right? So there are all these ways that you can utilize to get people to answer their cell phone. And now remember, you're getting somebody on their cell. So they might not even be at the office. So they, in a weird sort of way, might even be more free to tell you stuff because they're not sitting next to somebody that might lean over and go, wait a second, you know, uh, you probably shouldn't be talking about this stuff. You shouldn't be telling these people about the, our system architecture and how our firewall is set up, who, you know, and then the person goes, oh my God, you know, whereas, you know, they're on their cell phone, they're at home, they're driving. And if they believe what you're saying and you're calling them, you know, you know, every call, when you would make a call, you make it seem like it's an emergency so that there's a time pressure. And that's something for your listeners. You know, we all get the phishing emails, the phishing texts, you know, the phishing phone calls. And that's what I tell people all the time is that when you see one, that there's a time element, that there's a pressure, that is the automatic red flag. That is the automatic stop, put the device down, don't click on anything, don't forward anything, don't open anything. Because if you just can walk away, I mean, even for 30 seconds, better yet, five minutes, better yet, you know, longer than that. But even if you can just take that thing that you just don't open it and click, because that's what most people do. They open it. Oh, my God, somebody stole my blah, blah, blah. What the hell? Click. And now something's happened right? that you don't want. So um, I think that's the big thing I tell people is, is beware when something is trying to pressure you. Yeah. And for you, you said you're long retired, but what would it take for you to go back into corporate spying? If it were possible, what kind of thing would you like to work on? Would you like to move to an in-person type of spying? I'm not even, have you ever done in-person stuff or was yeah, it always yeah, just yeah. all over the phone? Yeah, we did in-person stuff in the early days, but here's the funny thing. Again, the we found that the anonymity of the phone call enabled us to get far more information. So we, you know, we went to a couple of conferences, went to a couple of bars, we went to a couple of sporting events where we knew people from certain firms would be, and we would interact with them and you know get information. Um, but we learned very quickly that yeah, yeah, you could get some information, but on the phone call, you could get a ton of information, and you weren't putting yourself in the type of risk because you weren't physically there. You know, there was right. one time I went to an event and I talk about this in the book where, you know, all of a sudden people were, you know, the authorities were looking at me. Security was kind of eyeballing me. And all of a sudden I had to make a dash. Um, and um, whereas over the phone, it, it, it was it was it was very different. Um, and, and here's the last funny story I'll tell you. So I write this book. I out myself as a corporate spy. So, you know, I write a mm. book, Ruse, about my career as a corporate spy. You know, I can't really spy anymore because I put a target on my back. I cannot tell you how many corporations have contacted me after reading the book, begging me to spy for them, <laughs> <laughs> begging me. And I, and I email them back. I say, look, I'm flattered, but don't you understand that? Like, you know, I basically identified myself to every authority, you know, uh, I wouldn't be very smart for me to spy. And they're begging me because, you know, a good corporate spy, as you can imagine, is hard to find. Yeah. And it's not a skill set that you can kind of just learn from a course online or anything like that. It's kind of, it's one of those things like, it's like sales. You can learn as, as much as you want, but really you either got it or you don't. And 
obviously for you, you had that, that background in acting. Obviously, you grew up around car salesmen, notoriously known as people that will sell you something that you don't really want for a price that you didn't really want to pay. And, you know, you were doing the reverse of that is you were giving, you were getting information that people shouldn't give away. They don't want to give away at a price that was, you know, extortionate. Yeah. But yeah. One thing I want to ask you, Robert, and, you know, this is something I ask every guest, but I, I always try to frame it differently to make it, you know, a bit more interesting for, for you to answer. So, Obviously, you know, you had this idea that you could have been a car salesman growing up, then you rejected that idea, became an actor. In my eyes, a, a more successful actor than most people. Corporate espionage became your your kind of bread and butter for a while. And now you're a fully fledged author of two amazing books, one of which I've read the first, <laughs> this is embarrassing to say, I've read the first 10 pages, but I will be reading the rest of it, you know, time permitting and obviously if I don't get spied on and put in prison or if I don't <laughs> spied on, I put in prison but all of that behind you and obviously things looking forward into the future what about what you do brings you the most joy oh man that's a great question um that's a great question you know I think the thing I try to do with my writing is I you know I try to write page turners Right. So Malibu burning puts you so that you feel like you're in a wildfire. Right. So you you're there, you know, and you're feeling, you know, the hairs on your forearm burn. And, you know, um, and and with Ruse, same thing. I, I put you so that you're like in this spy novel and you're like, oh, my God, is this guy going to get arrested? Is this guy going to go to jail? Is, you know, is he going to get the information? Is he not going to get the information? And so I think the thing that makes me happy is when people write me, they write a review, they contact me. And you know, you anybody can go to my website, robertkerbeck.com. Uh, and you can email me right from my website, you know, you can hopefully buy the book too. Um, and um, people reach out and they say, Hey, you know, man, that was that was fun. You know, reading your book was really fun. Um, you know, um, and a lot of people and the, the books are obviously quite different. They're both nonfiction, they're both true stories. Malibu burning a lot of people write me about their wildfire experiences, you know, not just in the, the Malibu fire, but in other fires. And they say, oh, we lost our home here. And, and it meant so much that somebody took the time to explain how painful it is to lose everything you ever had. You know, um, one of the arguments you hear sometimes, you know, from some callous people with wildfires as well, it's just stuff, you know, and if you have insurance, it's just stuff and you can rebuild. Well, I mean, I'm here to tell you, I can't tell you how many people in Malibu died after the fire. They they didn't die from the fire. They died after the fire from the broken heart of having lost everything that they ever home, owned. You know, one one person had a the family Bible that had the genealogy of the family going back like 400 years, handwritten, you know, burned. Uh, somebody else's grandfather's World War One uniform burnt, you know, all the photos burned. So, so, you know, so I, I get a lot of notes like that, that really, that really mean a lot to me. And then with Ruse, I get um, different notes, which are, man, this was so much fun. Oh my God, I laughed so hard. Oh my God, that was the craziest story. So those are the things that really, that really uh, make my day. They really do. When I get a note like that, my day is made. Where can the people find you online? Yeah, I'm on all the usual social media. You know, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, at Robert Kerbeck, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, same thing. I don't have any fancy handle. Um, and then uh, and then again, my website, robertkerbeck.com. I'm really proud of my website. It's got some a lot of additional material. Um, you can also see the trailer for Ruse, um, which is really cool because um, it gives a kind of a sense of not only the book, but, but uh, the potential TV show. Um, so go check that out, watch that video and, um, yeah, robertkerbeck.com. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.